0: Thank you. And as we turn in our Bibles to John 17, the passage which was already read, Stephen read that uh, for you. I want to bring the last in the series of three sermons, the high priestly prayer of Christ. Jesus prays for the church. I'm going to start in verse 11 and we're going to go through 26. Stephen read 9 through 26. 9 through 10 just kind of set us up for 11 through 26. And I know that I'm combining two sections here, um, which you may say is an impossible task for somebody like me, and it may be, all right? So I'll admit from the very beginning, we may get to a point in time here today where we need to call it quits. And we may not be at the quit in verse 26, okay? That'll be all right. We'll cover where wherever we can get to. We'll pick up next week, all right? And this will be a four-part sermon series. <laughs> but there are six identifying Identifying characteristics of the church, which Jesus prays for uh, in his last teaching, in his last time of prayer before the cross. Six identifying marks, six identifying characteristics of the church. And I know I'm combining, traditionally we've divided this prayer into three sections, and I think it's a right to do so. The first uh, six verses being focused around uh, Jesus, uh, or you know, proper uh, theology about God and who God is, about the glory of Christ. And then he transitions in verse 6 through 19 to pray for his disciples, those who were there with him at the time, at the, Judas having left already. And the 11 that are remaining, he's praying for them. He's also praying for the 120. He's also praying for the 500. You know, Jesus had concentric circles of influence in his ministry. And so we know that he had the 11 who were his uh, foundation stones of the church. And then he had, uh, he had 120 in that upper room there at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And then we know that 500 saw him alive. And, and we take from that and the testimony of Paul that those 500 were also following Christ in some manner. He had some influence over them. And that's why he appeared to them. So, These 11, he's praying specifically for them, also the 120, also the 500. And that last section, verses 20 through 26, he's praying for every believer of all time who will believe because of the witness of his disciples. Now, I said last time, two weeks ago, when we were preaching, when I was preaching on this text, verse 20, for years I saw that as kind of a hard break. Jesus is praying for the disciples. Then verse 20 says, I not only pray... For these, but also for those who will believe because of their witness. And I thought that was like a hard break. And then he started praying for us. And because of that, I was kind of upset. I I felt shortchanged. Now, you shouldn't feel that way about Jesus' prayer. He's perfect, right? But, I mean, let's just face it. They get the cool stuff, and we get unity and love. Right? I mean, here he's praying about some... Great stuff. A mission. I'm sending them into the world. As you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. I'm like, I want that. You know? He's not only praying about that. He's praying about the truth. I love the truth. You love the truth. Our church is known for loving the truth. That may be all we're known for right now in our community. But we love the truth, you know? And, and we love doctrine. Good doctrine. Not bad doctrine. I want that. And then, you know, he's praying also about the holiness. Man, I need that. I, I need that. Why didn't he pray for me when he was praying about holiness? Uh, he must have, must have forgot. But then I started studying this passage from the, from, from the text, and I see 20 is not a hard break. It's not as, af- as if Jesus was praying for the disciples only. And then he started praying for us only. He's praying for the church in full in verses 11 or 9 through 26. In other words, they had a mission and we have the same mission. They needed holiness and we have the same holiness. You see the, the combination? So I'm combining these two sections because I know in my mind I kept them separated too hard. So I'm trying to put them together. So we'll see them a little clearer, hopefully. And we'll see that, yes, it's right. He was praying for the 11 and for us. And he was praying for us and he was praying for the 11. Okay. And so I want to just run through these six with you. And in way of example of this, of what what we're really talking about, You know, there's a group that, of, of evangelical pastors in America that have joined together. It started four friends in a, in a, in a, uh, one of the homes of the friends, sitting around drinking Coke, drinking coffee, or their drink or beverage of choice, talking about theology. And these four men, I'm gonna tell you who they are later, these four men were just the best of buddies. Just the best of friends. They vacation together. They, they raising their kids together. They're, they're pastoring churches and, con- and, t- and going to conferences and speaking at the same conferences. And, and then they're also going and spending time together, getting to know one another, and talking about Christ and talking about the church. And, and then they said, you know, it would be cool if we could expand this beyond the four to something bigger. Well, that would be awesome. What what would we call it? And so they throw out some names, probably some cheese ball names, knowing these four guys. And then somebody in the group says, what if we called it Together for the Gospel? Together for the Gospel. Because what we're together on is the core principle of the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that what we're together on, they said that. They they said uh, we're brothers in Christ, united in one great cause, to stand together for the gospel. That's the way they started their preamble to the articles which they wrote about what they agree on. The reason they had to distinguish what they agree on is because they disagree on a lot of things. Now, who are these four men? One of them is a Reformed Southern Baptist. Two of them are, actually. Mark Driscoll and Al Mohler. All right? They're Reformed In other words, they they believe in the principles of the Reformation. They are the dirty word Calvinists. And they're in the Southern Baptist Convention. That would be their labels as the world knows them, okay? And then sitting next to him is a guy named Lig Duncan. Lig and Duncan. Presbyterian. Conservative Presbyterian. PCA. Pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson. Jackson. Teacher at Reformed Theological Seminary, Pado Baptist. So you got these two Baptist brothers sitting next to this Pado Baptist brother. And then sitting next to him is the oddball of them all. C.J. Mahaney. Bald-headed guy, real thin, uh, <laughs> self-proclaimed, uh, had lots of addict, addictions, uh, became a Christian late in life at college, loved baseball more than loved anything. Then he comes to Christ and he passionately falls in love with Christ. And he is a reformed charismatic. I know that's a contradiction in some of your minds. But that's what he is. So sitting around the, on the couch, but just imagine this, are four uh, modern day titans of reformation. If they started talking about all the things they disagreed on, the conversation would go way into the night. I mean... They, they don't agree on a whole lot of things is what I'm saying. But they do agree on the core values of the faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they said, let's get together over that. Let's unify around that. Let's stop picking each other apart about these other issues. They're important. That's why Lig goes to First Presbyterian Jackson. That's why Al goes to his church in Louisville that's a Southern Baptist church. Okay? That, that's why they go to different congregations on Sundays. But why can't we get together on the gospel? And then they invite, they sent an invitation out and held their breath, crossed their fingers, rented a facility and said, I hope somebody shows up. They sent out this little document I'm talking about. And as pastors around and, and brothers in the church read about this, you know, over 3,000 people showed up, men only, to study together about the gospel. That is the unity that Jesus Christ prayed for. He did not pray for some frivolous, surfacy unity. Let's all join hands saying uh, the world could be a better place if you and I were lights and, and then go you know, do something cheesy for Jesus. That's not what he's praying for. That's not what he died for. He also didn't die that we would drop our differences. And the reality is, you know... Al probably will never become a paedo-baptist, a Presbyterian. And those Presbyterians are not becoming Baptists, believers' baptism. They're not dropping those differences. What they're saying is those are secondary to the reality of Jesus Christ, which is in all of us, and we're brothers in Him. So let's come together over that to celebrate that unity, which we do have. And to celebrate our differences in coming together. And so they've done this now in 2006, 2008, and they're doing it again in 2010. And it just keeps growing and growing, this community of unity over the gospel. And it's what Jesus is praying about here. I use that as the introductory statement to say this can happen. This kind of unity can exist. But it does not exist on default mode. Now, I I can get into my kitchen, right, where I live, where you live. You and I, chances are, you and I, living in Calhoun County, and those who have lived here all your life, have you ever seen this? Real unity. And the chances are, very few of us have ever seen it on a local level. On a local level. And so. Something's missing and we're going to talk a little about that. So let's look at these identifiers. If we're going to unify, what, what are the things that we should be unified over? What is the gospel? What, what is, uh, Jesus' heart for his church? The first thing is Jesus prayed that the church would be identified by joy. Verses 11 through 13. That one, that one struck me as odd. Joy. It's no surprise that when we study the New Testament, you read it cover to cover, the New Testament uses the verb form of joy 72 times and the noun form 60 times. Joy is a big, big theme of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, every time you read an epistle, a letter, it starts out with greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, or it closes in such. You know what that word greetings is? You know what you know what it really means if we just break it down at its base meaning? Joy be with you. When Paul writes it, he's saying, have joy. That's what he's telling the church. They repeated it over and over as they wrote to one another, as they spoke to one another. And this idea of joy is an overarching theme of the church of Jesus Christ. The early church was so captivated by this thought that God loves us, that He is holy and He is at peace with us, that they were overjoyed then in their fellowship with Him and with each other. Joy became the the dominating theme, so to speak, of the local church, early church. That's what they were known for. And so I'm, I'm asking the question of myself, Jesus prays it here. Look what he says in verses 11 through 13. I'm not going to be in the world any longer, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. The name this Holy Father name is very common in the Old Testament. They would have they would have said, "Oh, he's praying to Jehovah." You know, they got that God is holy, and that He's set apart, that He's different. Holy Father, keep them in Your name which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them. I've not lost any of them except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Listen to what he says in verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. So, we, uh, we look at this passage. I do, and I start to ask myself... And I want to ask you, if we go and interview the people you live your life with, and we say, is Carlton, would you characterize him as a person filled with joy? Would they say, that's funny you bring joy up. That's exactly the one word description I would give of that guy. I mean, I've seen him when when bad was here, when good was here, and that dude... He is filled with joy. He's not always happy and smiling and giddy, but joy would be the characteristic. This unmovable, unshakable confidence in God which produces an overflow and display of real heart-level happiness with God. Where they say, Grace Fellowship, Grace Fellowship is a place filled with joy. That's that's the way I think of. When I walk through those back double doors into their worship service, it's just overflowing. I don't even have to know what they're singing. I just know they're singing all the time. They are deeply joyful. And I look around the congregation and there's people weeping. And there's people clapping and there's people raising hands and there's people sitting quietly contemplating and there's people singing and there's people not singing. And all of that blended together. The only thing I can describe is they've got joy. And it doesn't look the same on the outside all the time, but they've got it. Is that how they would characterize us? Is that how they would characterize you? I don't know for me. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure my own children would say that I'm overall a joyful person. I don't know that my wife would say that. And that's, a, that's not a good thing. Jesus prayed that we would have his, his joy. That we would have His joy. That we'd be known for His joy. So, how are we to have joy? In this world, in this life, Carlton, you don't understand. I've, my, ch- my children have died. My spouse of 50, 60 years has died. I'm sick. We don't have a job. I don't have money. I don't know. How am I supposed to have joy? You're talking about joy. Uh, Okay, I want to give you just three quick things that I think lead to joy. We need to persevere in sound doctrine. Look at verse 13 where he's talking about joy in his prayer. He says, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world. that, That I speak in the world. That I speak is doctrine. The most joyful people in the world are those who know the truth of God's Word. Because it's that truth which anchors them to the confidence in God that brings about true joy. Not not gaiety. Not running around frivolously, you know, flighty, head in the sand, pretending that everything's okay. No, we understand death's coming. Loss of jobs coming. Failure is coming. Divorce is coming. All these things are coming. But God is who He says He is. And I am who He has claimed me to be. And so therefore, I'm unmoved. I'm joyful. The first thing that brings joy is true doctrine. Understand. The second thing that brings joy is we need fellowship with God and with other believers who are joyful. Verse 13 Again, he says, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy. Fellowship with God. We're not just uh, having any type of joy. We're to be, Jesus is praying we have his joy. His joy. Jesus had that joy when he was hungry and when he was fed. He had it when he was in the desert and when he was in the city. He had it when his disciples did the right thing and when they messed it up. Jesus was a joyful man. Now, I know he was also a man of sorrow and great grief, but he was a joyful man. He was not. It was otherworldly in that way. And so it's, we got to have fellowship with him. We got to go to the source of joy. The source of joy is not my TV set. Where I'm entertaining myself to death. Source of joy is not an alcoholic beverage, which brings relaxation. Or the herbal kind that comes in pills or other forms. That's not the source of joy. It may relax you. Some of you may need some of that. But it's not joy. Joy doesn't come from my wife being all she can be for me, she can't be my source of joy. Not primarily. If she is, she's going to fail, and I'm going to fail her, and there ain't going to be any joy left. Jesus says, don't go to these other things for joy. Father, I'm leaving the world, and I'm telling them this doctrine, this truth, that they might have my joy. They might have fellowship with me and with others. And that my joy might be fulfilled in themselves, plural. Not in an individual." but in themselves. And so there we get the one another's of the New Testament. The reality is that I need you. I need fellowship with you. Because there's going to be days where my eyes have turned down to the world and my circumstances, and I need a brother to come alongside and say, hey, let me pray with you. Let me encourage you. Let me fix you something to eat. Let me give you some clothes to wear. Come sleep in my bed. I'll sleep on the couch. I I need fellowship. Because I get tired in this world. I get worn down and beat down by circumstances. I'm not perfect. I'm not Jesus. I'm going to Jesus. But you and we are Jesus on the earth. We are the body of Christ on the earth. And so the picture that Jesus is praying for is this joy which is unquenchable that comes from Him and through His people. He says, first of all, you will be identified by joy. Secondly, you will be identified. Jesus prayed that we would be known or identified by holiness. Holiness. That seems odd, right? I mean, from joy to holiness? Really? Really? I'm not happy when I'm around holy people. (laughs) They usually make me miserable, just to be honest with you. And that's because I have the wrong idea of what holiness is. Let me just tell you a little testimony of what I grew up thinking was holiness and then how it got changed in my life. I grew up thinking holiness was what I didn't do. You got that impression? That dude's holy. What they really mean is he's square. He's a nerd. He's a geek. He's a, some, some other label, but not necessarily holy. Because, see, holiness for me, as I was growing up, and I don't know, it might not be this way for you, but it might be. Do you identify with this? It was external. A holy person was a person that acted holy. And then I, I defined that, or the church defined that for me in my, in my life, and your friends might have defined that for you, whatever it was, Okay. And that, that kind of holiness is, is gonna fail every time, you know why? Because this church's definition of holiness won't be that church's, and it sure won't be your buddies you go watch the ball games with definition of holiness, right? So it can't be external. But as a kid, I didn't know that. So my whole beginning years were all about what I could not do. Which made me want to do them. Just being honest. Right? I mean, they said, don't drink. I said, must be good. Don't have premarital sex. Must be fine. Don't do this. Go after it. I, that's how I lived. You build the fence, I can climb higher. Some of you have that definition of holiness. That's how God broke it in me. I was 12 years old. He began to break it in me. I was 12 years old. One of my fondest memories of my granddad. He's a pastor. I've talked about him a lot. I know. I'm just trying to be real with you, be honest about how I learned. I, I was sitting in his study at 12. He was a pastor 50 years, and I love him, and he was a great pastor, okay? But in his generation, the church did this fabulous job of creating external holiness. In his day, his church, his brand of church was, was against a lot of stuff, okay? And they did a great job creating Pharisees. I'm not throwing stones, I'm just being honest. And then my granddad said this. One Saturday afternoon, he's getting ready. He was a bivocational pastor. He's getting ready for his sermon. I'm sit, I used to sit down at the desk, you know, with him and watch him and bug the stew out of him. And I know he probably was thinking, good grief would this kid leave me alone. I'm trying to get something done, you know, but he never did. He's always patient. And one day he said, buddy, and that's what he called me, he said, buddy, I spent, I've spent most of my life preaching against smoking, drinking, gambling, dancing, premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, and all these other things. It's waste. I should have been telling people who they are in Christ. I should have been pleading with lost people to come to Christ. They needed to know who we are. Who we are for, not what we are against. Jesus said, I'm praying they'll be holy. That they won't be out of the world, but they'll be in the world. I'm leaving the world. They need to stay in it. And I'm asking you to keep them while they're there, good Father. His prayer for holiness is not a prayer that we give up a bunch of social things. Though, being like Him will cause us not to do something. The motivation of the heart will be different. The externals may look similar, but the internals will be absolutely different. Because a lot of us are living life like this. I know I do this, I catch myself in this trap. Spiritually, we're getting red faced, trying hard. I'm running. And then I fall out, and I get defeated. I fall off the wagon. And I just live for some period of time, hours, day, a week, sometimes a month, and just you couldn't tell I was a Christian. I'm worn out. My lungs are hurting. And then I get a dose of legalism again infused to try harder, and I jump up, and I feel good for a while. And man, I sprint hard, and I'm getting after it. Everybody's saying, that dude's knocking it out for Jesus. No, I'm knocking it out for myself. And for you. But I'm not knocking it out for him. Because the whole motivation is this external holiness. And what Jesus is saying is I want them to be sanctified, verse 17, by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is talking about a holiness which comes from the character of God. And it is positional. It's internal. It's happened. Are you a believer today? Answer that question. If if I was to walk to you and say, are you a Christ follower? Would your answer be yes or no? If your answer is yes, then you are holy. You are set apart. You have Him in you. Have you thought about that lately? While you're out there running hard. Think about my exercise video. You know, it's like, get wiggly with it. You know, and I'm doing that while I, while I, while I work. While I live, while I go with my family places, I'm getting wiggly with it. I'm running hard. And at the end, I'm about ready to pass out in the video. I'm about ready to pass out in life. Aren't you? And Jesus is in praying for that kind of holiness. Jesus is saying, help them know who they are. Help them know they are holy. Just as I am holy and you are holy. And they're going to know that by the truth. Man, if you want to be holy, you and I need to get in the Word of God and let it get into us. And His character, the spirit of Him in us, will change who we are. Which will lead to external changes sometimes. I'm not denying that. Don't go home and say, well, the preacher said, just do whatever you want on the outside. It don't matter. No. Because out of that changed heart flows either good or evil. Out of the heart comes who you are. What Jesus taught us, right? He wasn't about Phariseeism. I can't pass this up. How many of you hate accountability? As you've known it in your life, let's just be honest. Raise your hand. You hate it. I'm liking that. Honesty on a Sunday morning. You can't get it everywhere. I hate accountability. I'm going to be honest with you. When when I'm in a group of guys and they talk I'm going to be accountable. I'm like trying to figure out how I'm getting out. Because all that's ever been in my life was a beat-up session. Smack me down. That's all it's ever been. How much time did you spend with the Lord this week? An hour? It needs to be two. Yeah. Did you say a curse word this week? Yes. You're going to hell. I'm scared of death. And for some of you, and and I don't know who you are, I'm sure I've done it to you. We're good at making Pharisees. Jesus spends 45% of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I learned this last week. 45% of the Gospels is Jesus telling the Pharisees they don't know what they're doing. You don't get it because you're worried about the externals. It's the heart that we're after. 45% is to one group of people who are trying to get everybody to modify their outward living so they look like good people and they're going to hell. 45. And I was doing the same thing. And for some of you, I've done it. And I, I'm wrong for it. I can't change what I did in the past, but I am, I am going to try by the grace of God. To do it different in the future. And this is what it should look like. It should look a lot more like me trying to get to the heart of the issue with you. Not, did you look at pornography this week? Do you need to be looking at pornography? No. But that's not really the issue. The issue is something deeper. And if we deal with this up here on the surface, we don't ever get to this down here at the heart. And that's what Jesus wants to get at is the heart. Because he knows once the heart Is holy, set apart, all the actions start falling into place. How does that change the way I parent? A lot. (laughs) A lot. It changes everything about my life, changes everything about who I am. He prayed that we'd be joyful. He prayed we'd be holy, set apart, sanctified. The word literally means to set apart from worldly use to service of God. Every one of us have been set apart from worldly use and set apart to the service of God. There are, the word saint in the New Testament is used for every believer. You are a saint. You are sanctified. We've been set apart to serve unto God. And that's our second mark. We're not like the world, Jesus says. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And I want to touch on that. And I see right now we're not going to finish. Okay, so relax. Dude, he's on too. We got four more. No. We got a whole other sermon next week. Come back. All right? Relax. Don't miss the point because you're worried about the other points. So we ain't got to. we We're just going to stay here and then maybe try to introduce a little bit of the truth right here and then the next identifier, which is the truth, and then we're going to be done. Just hold on just for this little point right here. Some of us have gotten the idea that what Jesus wanted for us was to leave the world and not to engage the world. And what he says right here is he wants us to engage the world. Unfortunately, some of us have held up segments of the church whether they be Amish or Mennonite I had a lot of Mennonite friends growing up and I love them dearly but we thought and the fundamentalists are just bad versions of that really because at least these people are honest they wear different kinds of clothes they wear little hats the girls do and they braid their hair and you know who they are fundamentalists dress like me and you and they live worse harder lives than the Mennonites ever dreamed of My point is this, they're wrong. That's wrong. We're not trying to be judgmental, I'm just telling you. Jesus didn't say move to the ranch and get everybody to go with you and live in a commune and don't watch TV and wear homemade clothes and and object to everything the government's about and everything your neighborhood's about and everything everybody... Jesus said, Father, I'm leaving the world and they are in the world, but I don't want them to be of the world. I want them to be filled with joy and set apart for your service." In the world, you can't serve God on the ranch. You have got to get in the neighborhood. He planted you where you are. Pebble Creek, Legacy Hills, Coldwater. He planted you in your community, and all he's saying is, "Be my witness in that community." In ohatchie in Piedmont, yep, Piedmont too, Jacksonville, Oxford, Anniston. Spring Garden, Gadsden, wherever you are, I've planted you there. Now be like me there. Be like me there. And guess what? Being like Jesus has very little to do with the way I externally operate. It's more of the motivation of my heart, which will change my external operation. It will change my external operation. My house won't look just like my neighbor's house in the way it operates. That's the attractiveness of it. That's the stickiness of the community of Christ is that your neighbors get thirsty for Jesus looking at you. and They say, he's got something I don't have. I want that. And when your son's in junior high and all his buddies are going one way and he leads the other way, they say, that dude's different. The decisions we need to be making are centered around who we are, not what we're against is what I'm trying to say. The center of what we are is who we are. Our identity in Christ, we've been set apart for His service. But you can't serve in your holy huddle. I can't serve in my holy huddle. Jesus commissioned us out, and we're going to get there, to the world. Now, that comes in all shapes and sizes. For some of y'all, that comes in homeschool. For some of you, it comes in public school. For some, it comes in private school. For some, it comes in homemade clothes. For some, it comes in store-bought clothes. For some, it comes in abstaining from alcohol. For some, it comes in moderation of alcohol. For some, it, I can go down the list of externals. But those externals are not what unifies us. Neither are they what should divide us. But rather, what should bring us together is the gospel, and what should make us part ways from one another is the gospel. If you don't hold to the gospel, then we cannot be unified. Even if we like the same recreations and like, we can't be truly unified. But if you do love the gospel, and I love the gospel, we can be unified no matter whether, you know, I'm weird and you're sane, or you're sane and I'm weird. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I close with this analogy. Dave Swinney is probably the nerdiest dude I've ever been friends with. No. He really is, and he's self-proclaimed at it, okay? So I'm not talking bad about him because he's on the beach somewhere. Notice the background slide was of an ocean rolling in. Isn't that just torturous? The dude's in Hawaii, and he puts us... Anyway, he does all kinds of quirky stuff like that, and it gets on my nerves, okay? And I do all kinds of quirky stuff he don't get, and it gets on his nerves. But when we sit down together, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes us love each other. And he don't look like me, and I don't look like him. And he's one—he's a great example. Okay? If you know him, he's got friends hanging out together that shouldn't even be in the same room together. There should be a fist fight going on with these dudes. But he's got all these guys, renegades and outlaws with organized, you know, perfectionist Dave. And they're hanging out. And they get on each other's nerves, but one thing drives them. They love Christ, and they want to see Him displayed to the world. So they're willing to come together, regardless of their differences. And what makes that joyful is that that's what Jesus was praying for. Not that you would look like me, or I would look like you. Not that we'd be unified over these peripheral things, but that we would center around Him. And we'd look more and more like Him. Not like one another. Tip for our marriages from this. Getting real practical. Husband, you're not trying to make your wife look like you. And wife, you better not be trying to make your husband look like you. We need to be growing together towards Christ. Which will make us look totally different. Than either me or her. You know, I'm... The first couple years of my marriage, I tried to make Amy act like me, think like me, have emotions like me. It don't work. She doesn't do all those things. She was trying to make me like her. We butted heads all the time until finally the Word of God got in us and the Spirit of God convicted us. And we stopped trying to pull each other this way and started trying to push each other that way to Christ. And now it's glorious. Is it without conflict? No. I still get on her nerves real bad. I'm still quirky. I'm still different. But we're, we're becoming more like Christ by His grace. And we're becoming a third entity. It's no longer me and Amy. It's now this new thing. One flesh. The church is the same way. It's no longer Christ and people. The church is Christ and His people. It's a new entity. It's a new thing. It doesn't look the same. And so what I'm trying to say to you is that joy, that unity, that holiness comes from him. He is the source of all things. And to him and through him we receive all grace from God that we might be gracious to one another. What a beautiful bride God's making. And I'm glad it's not all thumbs and toes and elbows, but it's a whole beautiful bride. Let's pray. Father. We parked on these two things and